Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Listen now for God's word to us. As Jesus walked along, he saw a, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, 
But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins. And are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now you say, we see, and your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord. So once again, like last week, we have one of these long, drawn-out narratives that, that are typical of John's gospel. And this one might even be a bit more complicated uh, and more theologically loaded than last week's even. This story also begins in a very peculiar way, because, in part because the healing that takes place where Jesus heals this blind man is completely unsolicited. The, the man who was born blind never once asks to be healed by Jesus. In fact, he doesn't even speak until after the healing is done, nor are we given any indication that this man even knows who Jesus is, had even heard of him. Later, when, when the people begin to question him, and they ask him about the man who healed him, he refers to Jesus as the man called Jesus. Very simple. And then recounts Jesus' instructions to him. He says, simply, Jesus, he spit on the ground, made some mud, spread it over my eyes, and told me to go wash. And I did. And now I see. So he does it, and he comes back healed. But one of the, I think, more fascinating kind of overarching questions of this story that continues to play itself out through the narrative is the question that is asked by the disciples at the outset, the one that gets this entire thing moving in the first place. They see this man who was born blind, presumably begging at this time, because we know that he was a beggar. And they ask him, they ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. And notice how they phrase this question. They don't ask if the man's blindness is a result of someone's sin. They simply ask whose sin caused it. Was it his parents who sinned? Or was it he who sinned and caused his own blindness? Because for them, it's a foregone conclusion that this man's blindness had to have been the result of sin. There's no other explanation in their mind. Never mind the absurdity of, of asking if uh, someone 
who was born blind, if, if that was the result of their own sin, as if they could somehow do something in the womb that would be worthy of that kind of punishment. But Jesus is quite clear in his response. His blindness is not the result of sin, he says. He is not being punished. This is not a consequence of someone's actions. This is not how God works. This is not who God is. On the one hand, it's easy to hear their question and and kind of be struck by its silliness, right? To, To think, well, who actually thinks that way? That's kind of absurd. But the reality is that for many of us, if not most of us, and a lot of people in general, I think, this is often our kind of our gut reaction to pain, to tragedy, to, to affliction, whether we voice it like the disciples did or not. Whenever we enter one of these, these times of trial or suffering, uh, whenever something unexpected takes place, the, one of the first questions that immediately pops into our heads is, why me? What, what did I do to deserve this? Why would God allow this to happen to me? And it's a natural question to ask, I think. And whether we like to admit it or not, we also have a tendency to think this way about other people. There are so many stories of parents out there who, who have a child born with a disability, who have been made to, who have been shamed into thinking and feeling that, uh, their child's disability is somehow the result of something that they've done wrong, that it's their fault that it must be the result of some sin, even though we may not always phrase it in that way. When, For instance, when autism first began being diagnosed in the 30s and 40s, psychologists initially blamed it on what they called refrigerator mothers. That is, mothers who had such a cold affect and, and no emotional warmth whatsoever that it caused their child to resist a human connection. That their sin, their lack of warmth, their coldness made their child this way, that it was their fault. And that diagnosis has had a very unfortunately lasting legacy. More recently, some have tried to blame it on things like vaccinations or or whatever it might be, even though we don't have any kind of research to suggest that that's the case. But we always have to have someone or something to blame. The question is always, like the disciples, who sinned? Who, who did this? Who, who do we get to point our fingers at in this situation? And so we continue to ask that question. Who sinned? Was it the parents? Was it doctors? Caregivers? Therapists? Someone else? So we ought to hear Jesus' words here and take them very seriously when he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. His condition is not a punishment. This is not how God works. This is not the God that we know in Jesus Christ. The God that we worship is not some vindictive monster who punishes people in this way. Now, unfortunately, whenever big tragedies strike, um, whether it be natural disasters or human caused by humans, this same sentiment is echoed by many, many pastors and, and other people in the public eye, many of whom have booming voices, and large captive audiences. Far too often, these preachers have had no problem attributing things like 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy, others, uh, to the judgment of God on sinful people in sinful places. It's because of some particular sin 
that these people had this thing happen to them. The God who annihilates thousands of people as an act of judgment on sinners is not the God who revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. This is not the God that Paul writes about in Romans 5 when he says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely than now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. The God who sends hurricanes as a judgment is a God who demands worship under, under threat of wrath. But the God we know in Jesus Christ is the God who takes that wrath upon himself. It's the God who, although we were his enemies, trapped in our own sin, gave up his life for us that we might have life. This is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the God who sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. And as Jesus will say soon after this in John 10, it is the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And in this story that we read today, we begin to see this abundant life bubbling up in this man who was born blind. After he's healed, there's this long scene that basically is an interrogation. First, the people wonder if this is even the same person. Is, this, is, this, is it possible that this is the same blind beggar that we've seen day after day? I mean, it, it looks kind of like him, but, but maybe it's someone else. Maybe, it just, maybe there's some kind of resemblance here. And then they, they ask him where Jesus is. But since the man doesn't know and says that, you know, I'm that same guy, they bring him to the Pharisees to be questioned further. And the interrogation takes a step up at that point. And as the interrogation goes on, the man's boldness, the man's courage, his testimony begins to grow. He started out by simply referring to Jesus as the man called Jesus. As the Pharisees begin to question, he then calls Jesus a prophet. Fear pervades this entire narrative as he and his parents are afraid of being expelled from the synagogue, which at that time was the center of community life for the Jewish people. It's not like, you know, if you get run out of the Baptist church, you can just come over here to the Presbyterian church and, and we'll accept you with open arms. We will, we will. <laughs> but but that's, that's not how this works at that time. Being expelled from the synagogue would mean being almost completely ostracized from your entire community. But in the midst of that fear... In the face of that threat, even when his own parents aren't willing to speak in his defense for him, he grows more and more courageous. And eventually, even gets to the point of being rather bold in the things that he says to the Pharisees. He almost kind of taunts them and, and pokes at them a little bit and asserts quite passionately that Jesus must be from God because how else could he be doing this? If he were not from God, he would not be able he would not have been able to open my eyes. But yet again, the Pharisees can only see this man as a sinner. He has to be a sinner. Whether it's the result of his sin or his parents' sin, sin has infiltrated this man, and this is why he was born this way. So they flippantly brush aside his testimony and say, 
you were born entirely in sins, and you're trying to teach us? The Pharisees had one and only one definition and identity for this man. That is, that he was a sinner. They were unable to see him as anything else. And because of that, they completely miss the boat on his testimony. They completely miss what he says to them, what he reveals to them about who Jesus is and what he's capable of. And their encounter then culminates with this man who was born blind, who Jesus healed, being driven out of the community. But him being driven out, this thing that he was so afraid of, that his parents were so afraid of, isn't presented by John, our narrator, as quite the death sentence one might expect. Because along with his being expelled from that community, he does find a new home. He does find a new community with Jesus Christ. He finds a new identity. He is a new person, a new creation. And then that climaxes in his recognition of who Jesus is as the Son of Man, and he eventually confesses, Lord, I believe. I believe. I wonder how often we, have, we too have been a bit too much like the Pharisees, disregarding the testimony of those who we can only see and identify as sinner. How could they possibly have anything to teach us about who God is? How easy it is to forget that the Bible reminds us that every single one of us is guilty of sin and that we are all equally in this condition. Now, part of the issue, I think, is that uh, we often still have difficulty of separating the idea of sin from the individual sins that we and others commit. We, we tend to focus on the latter. We focus on sins, focus on other people's sins and our own sins rather than the big picture of what sin actually means. But what we miss when we do that is that those sins, the things that we do, are not the real issue. They're only symptomatic of the larger issue of sin. There's a, a great German theologian named Paul Tillich who once said, sin does not mean an immoral act. In fact, sin should never be used in the plural, he said. It's not our sins, but rather our sin, singular, that is the great all-pervading problem of our life. Now, what Tillich and uh, what Tillich is pointing us towards, I think, is the very same thing that John the Baptist was pointing us towards in John chapter 1, where he saw Jesus walking by and he, he said, he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Singular, not sins, sin. Now, this, of course, is, is not to suggest that our individual sins don't matter or that we shouldn't strive to live our lives in as holy a manner as possible, because, of course, we should. But we can also, I think, from time to time, become a bit obsessed with that question. Who sinned? Who is sinning? And sometimes it can even be used as a bludgeon against others. And like the Pharisees, the results, whether we intend it or not, can often be to drive people out. It's also a way for us to conveniently, I think, ignore the real answer to that question of who sinned, which, of course, is all of us, every single one of us. And when we look at the big picture of sin, 
and realize that we are all on equal footing, that there's nothing that any of us can do, because no matter how good we strive to be, the Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this is the good news that we celebrate, particularly during Lent, particularly during this season, that though our sin separates us from God, Christ has come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That though we were enemies of God, God sent Christ into the world that we should have life and life abundant. And this should be the character of our gospel proclamation, that in the face of death, Christ brings life. That we are not defined by our sin, we are defined by our gracious Savior. And that all who accept that invitation to life, Christ's arms are open. Amen.